The advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. and welcome to Autism Live. I'm Shannon Penrod and we are webcasting to you live from the Center for Autism and Related Disorders headquarters in Tarzana, California. It's Wednesday and Wednesday is always very exciting here because in just a few moments we're going to be joined by Dr. Doreen Grampache for Ask Dr. Doreen. You'll be able to ask her questions in real time. Then a little later on today in the second half of our show we have Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy. Nancy Allspa Jackson will be here joining me and our very very special guest today will be Stella Waterhouse, author of the new series of books, The Autism Code. So that will be very interesting. We've got some new uh, stories breaking in the news that we'll be bringing you in that second hour as well. I want to start the show by reminding you that this entire show is meant to be interactive. We want your input. We want your feedback. And most importantly, we want your questions. If you have something that you wish you could be asking an autism expert, boy, today is your day. Emily's going to cycle through some of the different ways that you can get in touch with us here and I'm going to remind you that our homepage is autism-live.com. When you go there you'll see a desktop. There is a computer screen and on that computer screen is a little triangle. Click on that and you can either be watching the live show or the most recently recorded live show. To the side of that you see uh, a series of white boxes. The second white box says questions they're answering right now and you can put your cursor there and type whatever you would like. Send your questions right now for Dr. Doreen Grampache to be answering. We want to remind you at the start of the show that all of the experts that we have here on the show, none of them can give you child-specific advice, including Dr. Grampache, because in this format, it simply doesn't allow for it. And no one on the show would ever disrespect your child's individuality in that way. But having said that, there's so much information that can go back and forth in this format, and it's entirely free. You don't have to log in, you have complete anonymity, even we do not know who you are. Which means that if you want us to get back to you, you will have to include some private information in your communique with us. I will keep that private so we will not share that with the world. Having said all of that, I hope you'll participate with us today because it's time for Ask Dr. Doreen. Dr. Doreen Grandpiche is the Dr. Doreen is an expert in autism. Doreen Grandpiche. Dr. Grandpiche. Dr. Doreen Grandpiche. Dr. Doreen Grandpiche is a visionary in the field of autism. Now you can ask her questions on Ask Dr. Doreen. <laughs> 
Welcome back. We want to start by welcoming Dr. Doreen Grampache. Thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. Thank you. This is like my favorite hour of the week because it's an opportunity to learn at the feet of the master. I, you are oh. an amazing expert who has been working in the field of autism for several decades now. And I always like to say that, and because I believe it to the very fiber of my core, that you are a visionary in this field. Thank you're, you very much. You're an yeah, expert, but you, you're able to see uh, far into the future and, and you see our kids, each individual. I've, I've seen you uh, with my child and I've seen you with many other children. You're just an amazing person. Oh, thank you. That's very nice of you to say. <laughs> it's I very love the true. kids and, and I learn from the kids and the families all the time and I hope we're still able to help some families. But, well, they write in every week and tell us how helpful this hour is and we're hearing from more and more BCBAs who are writing in oh, and saying great. how helpful this hour oh, is. Oh, really? That's awesome. Yes, I'll have to very share good. some of those with you. It's pretty amazing. That's uh, in any case, we want to get right into some questions. As I mentioned before, there is no child-specific advice on this program from anyone, including Dr. Grampache. But if you write and give us lots of information, there there is a great deal that she can share with you that will help you on your path towards creating progress. So uh, this question came in a couple of days ago. Hello, Dr. Doreen. My name is Lisa. I have a child diagnosed a year ago at age seven. Mm -hmm. How can I teach him fear to danger going back to last week's program uh, where we were talking about that she says in order and uh, in order for him to understand eloping and wandering that it's dangerous I tried to scare him a bit to show him what can happen I yelled at him out of frustration when he was in danger and nothing has worked thus far he still forgets and does it again is the ADHD diagnosis he has in addition to his ASD to blame he's very impulsive and forgets things instantly also in regard to the viewer we had a viewer last week who uh, asked about an IEE and we thought it was a misprint uh, apparently in some places in the country uh, they call when you have your child evaluated she uh, has informed us they call it an independent educational evaluation mm -hmm. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, and she says it's when a parent is not happy with the result of a school evaluations, you can ask the school in writing for an IEE to get the child reevaluated with a non-district affiliate evaluator at the school district expense. Love that. Okay, so thank you for sharing that information because somebody will benefit from that. And then let's go back to the seven-year-old who uh, diagnosed a year ago, so now he's eight, um, okay, so the very first question is how on earth could he be diagnosed at seven? So what was going on before that? Yeah. And the assumption I would have to make is that he is extremely high functioning that no one saw anything going on until age seven. So that would be my hope. I don't know, uh, you know, uh, we, we don't know. And if you're watching live, write back and tell us, but certainly for a, a child who has no sense of danger. No, you would, there's just no way that you, well, I mean, sense of danger you could have if you have, you know, very, very high functioning mm -hmm. PDD as it used to be, or Asperger's, you could still have problems with understanding danger. Um, I just can't imagine that the child would ever have a diagnosis of autism and not okay. be diagnosed until seven. That okay. just doesn't seem possible okay. to me. Um, so, however, let's assume that this is a very high-functioning child okay. and has a lot of ADHD symptoms, uh, which sometimes could s resemble or, or you know, pair be paired with 
um, let's say Asperger's type symptoms. Okay. So very, you know, I'm imagining a very high functioning child who doesn't have a very good comprehension of social norms and so on. So yes, the ADHD type stuff, the impulsivity can certainly be responsible for uh, not paying attention to danger. There, okay. There's no question about that. In fact, with any of us, if we are impulsive, if we rush, we tend to not pay attention to danger. Okay, True. it's just very simple. Uh, yeah. You, if you're in a rush, you might do things that are more dangerous. Yeah. So you know, if that's the cons that's if you see that as being one of the main things, like you see actually that the child is is always too fast. You need to work on slowing down the child. But if it's just a matter of like him really not understanding the concept of danger or fear, then, you know, danger is really very, very clearly just a, an association that occurs with fear. So anything that we consider dangerous is something that is associated with fear. Now, with if you're a little bit older or if you have cognitively developed in that area you're able to internalize that in a way that you don't have to experience every danger mm -hmm. in order to know that it's dangerous right. so you don't have to burn your hands in order to know that fire can burn right um, the way you know that is by for example looking at the fear reaction of a parent and um, understanding what they're thinking. Yeah. So that goes back to perspective taking, yeah. of course. And if you have a hard time uh, being able to, uh, I guess, understand the the emotions of someone else, f then you're going to have to experience it yourself. You're, there's going to have to be a classical conditioning of fear to a certain situation in order for it to become dangerous. That's just that simple. Okay. And it goes back to that example that I had given with infants and how they would have like a snake in front of the infants and the infants yeah. would just as well touch the snake because yes. there is no fear of objects at that point right. until a very loud noise was made behind the infant and then the infant automatically associated the loud noise to right. the snake and then the snake became something that they wanted to avoid. The thing about classical conditioning is that the association has to be done, has to be paired uh, almost instantaneously. In fact, it's a half a second uh, that you're allowed to separate it. Okay. In other words, um, the conditioned response, or the, so the, the item, like let's say you want to teach your child danger from crossing the street. Right. So the, within, thir within half a second of the child, um, let's say attempting to put their foot into the across the curb within half a second a fear evoking thing has to happen okay. in order for the two to be paired and that's the most successful is the you know the conditioned stimulus and the unconditioned the unconditioned being fear itself the two things have to be paired uh, within half a second okay. in order to be effective. So she writes in, I've tried to scare him a bit, and I don't know what that means a bit, but potentially where I, I know I would make the mistake as the parent that I don't think I would have known the half second. Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's, you know, the formula for classical conditioning is, uh, I think some of the words may have changed nowadays because they keep changing these things, but the, it was CSUS. So that means conditioned stimulus is paired with the, 
unconditioned stimulus. The unconditioned stimulus is the fear-evoking stimulus, whatever that really does make you afraid, for instance. And that's very important. So like when you say I've tried to scare him a bit, right. it just may not be potent enough. It might not be something that actually scares that exactly. child. We talked about loud, loud noises last week. And you actually brought yes. up the, those, uh, what are those the things air called? Air horn. That's like the best idea ever because an air horn, air horn will, will startle pretty much anyone, <laughs> right? And so the concept would be to practice this with, let's say, he puts his foot off the curb and you will do the air horn, but you have to do it in a way that he doesn't know you have it. Okay. Right? Because if he knows, he will come to anticipate that if you are there, this happens. Okay. If you are not there, he, he's pretty safe. Okay. And then that's one way of doing it. I mean, so the typical way that children will learn these things, obviously, is through the concept of seeing other children or other individuals being hurt, right? Mm. And I don't think that he has that capability. I really don't know. Right. If he does, then uh, it's kind of like, uh, oh, what am I talking about? They do this with us when we go to traffic school. Yeah. If you if you speed or do something like that and you go to traffic school, um, yes. or even online, right. what do they show you? They show you horrific videos yeah. of accidents and things that scare the life out yeah. of you. They try to scare you straight. That's right. what they do. I'll never forget. I remember seeing a, an ad um, a few years ago in... Uh, in England, actually, we'd never had these commercials here, but it was a commercial I will never forget mm. because it was uh, um, it, it was about people who were sitting in the back seat. You know, in the UK, they mandate uh, um, seat belts also in the back seat. Yes, and um, this was just a horrifying commercial. Like yeah. I remember seeing it, and from that moment on. I always insist everybody in the back seat put their seatbelts on, and it is just such a scary thing. You never will forget. Yeah. So that's really the primary way of doing it. But obviously, if your child doesn't um, connect, doesn't yeah. isn't able to watch a video or or hear a story or a scenario and apply it to themselves, then they have to have the direct experience and. Uh, don't make the mistake of thinking that scaring the child a little bit is going to be adequate. You shouting at the child is probably not going to be enough. Right. But again, and we said this last week, and you can go back and watch last week's show to find out much more about this process. This doesn't mean that you terrorize the child. This right. doesn't mean you torture them, and it doesn't mean that you hurt them or put them in harm's way. That's right. And this is very, very important because when we overuse, if, if you end up you know, over exposing your child to yeah. a fearful event or to a traumatizing event, then actually, in addition to psychologically damaging in, in terms of uh, the child becoming fearful of many things, the fear-evoking event stops. You, right. It becomes neutral. You, the child will become habituated to it. Right. So, you know, so we all, actually, it's really funny, but even something like an air horn, you can habituate to. Yes. So uh, you just don't want to produce something on a continuous level that is like traumatizing. This is just to provoke a, a sort of a, a adrenaline reaction. You know, it's the fight or flight response in the child. And in order to do that, you need to be able to 
uh, connect the danger with some form of uh, alerting stimulus? So I go back to this with this question because it is a safety issue. Yes. And it is such a concern, and the parent has been trying some things on their own. That yes. would it would it be remiss of me to say that really you really should be working on this with an expert? I I think that would be critical because first of all, I mean, I still have a lot of questions in this case because yeah. first I can't understand why. Uh, the child's issues wouldn't have been recognized until seven. But anyway, I do really recommend that you work with an expert, especially if you have a dual diagnosis of ADHD, which until this year wasn't even possible. Right. But now let's assume that you have a recent diagnosis, and I'm just guessing that might be ADHD and Asperger, you know, ASD, Asperger's type, um, or very, very low severity ASD. I still have a difficulty with just that in itself. And but anyway, I would really suggest that you do, and, and it could be something as simple as once your child is uh, given medication or treatment for the ADHD, these issues tend to subside because you really are, um, you know, if you can slow the child down to pay attention to what is going on, he may very well remember the fact that it, it, something could be dangerous. I will say that, and I, you are an expert in the field of autism, and you are world-traveled, and you go all over the place, and you see all different kinds of circumstances, but I, I, I will say that I don't have your faith that the people who were around this child recognized it and said something to the parent. I, I, I think it is possible still, at this point in time, discipline Pointingly so. Seven. I've only I, it's ever, unconscionable. I've only ever, Shannon, in my entire career, had one child that I diagnosed, and he was seven, and that was a child who came from the Middle East and yeah. was very, very protected, and it was very like he just, you know, they nobody really wanted the diagnosis. Let's put right. it that way. But I mean, seven. It's just, you know, it, you have to. The symptoms have to be extremely mild, in my okay. opinion. If you're in, in the United States, I hope you're right. Yeah, I hope, I hope so. you're right. Um, but we'll we'll wait to hear back from this parent to I hope see. To hear, yes. Um, because we'd uh, like to help more, actually, if we know a little bit more. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, Moving on, we've got uh, some question, a question that came in on the Facebook. What can I do when my oldest son, the one with ASD behaviors, rub off on his typical five-year-old little brother? For instance, chewing. It was never an issue with our youngest, but after seeing his brother do it his whole life, he has picked up on this as well as along with other things. Um, and, I, and I'm assuming that the chewing is chewing things that you don't want them to chew on. Obviously, we want kids to chew food, right? So I'm assuming that it's if it's a problem behavior, uh, chewing on other things, whether it's the shirt sleeve, their hand, the pencil, toys, right. or whatever. Right. I mean, you have to, you know, this is the, the beauty of behavior analysis is that it doesn't just apply to kids with autism. Obviously, it applies to anyone. So what do you do? What, what's the first stage when you have a behavior? What are you supposed to do? You gotta find the function of the behavior. There you go. I'm a good student. So before I <laughs> before I even respond to that, you ha you have to identify why the five-year-old is doing this. Okay. So it's not yes, it's an imitation because he has the stimulus to imitate, but his function still remains. What is okay. the function? Is he doing it in order to gain attention? He could be because there's a lot of attention on his sibling right. and he thinks if I do the same thing, they'll give me attention as well. Right. So in that case, obviously you need to make sure you are giving him a lot of attention when he's not biting. Right. And you are, you know, you still block or prevent the biting. 
Um, is he doing it because he needs some sort of sensory stimulation? Is he doing it because he uh, is trying to avoid a demand? Is he doing it because he wants access to something? I don't know. And that really does help determine how you treat it. Yeah. So uh, perhaps you will give us some information and then we can help further with the function. And again, I want to say that's why I love the BIP Builder, the BIP Builder, yes. um, which is uh, beautiful because it, it, together with the uh, CIFA, which is sort of the assessment portion of it, uh, online you can answer questions about this particular behavior and uh, it will really give you a bunch of ideas on how to deal with it. But really, you cannot stop a behavior unless you know the function because you could be potentially uh, intervening in the wrong way. Okay, and really important because when we take the time to come up with an intervention, we want it to be effective and Absolutely. we certainly don't want to make it worse. That's right. And if we don't know what the function of the behavior is, we could make it worse be and, and make a bigger mess if we're not going about it in the right way. Correct. I, I always liken it to the when, when you have something go wrong with your car, mm -hmm. uh, you don't just pull it into the garage and say to the person, I'm, I know it's this, rip all that out, I'll pay thousands of dollars without looking at it first and determining if in fact that is what's wrong with it exactly and, and we care infinitely more about our kids than we do about our cars right <laughs> <laughs> so let's take the time to figure out what's really going right. on before we start to think that we're going to intervene and and repair something yeah it's very important I mean it, the procedures will be the same it'll be a lot easier because of your uh, typically developing child will be able to pick up on what your intention is very fast but it's really important most of the time when I have a child imitating a sibling who is affected with ASD it's attention-seeking behavior most of the time but you know it could be anything and that makes a certain amount of sense absolutely the kids are trying to figure out how do I fit into this family and this person who's older tends to do X Y and Z and they get a whole lot of attention well then why don't I try that exactly uh, and if it works then I'm going to keep doing it right, right. and a lot of times uh, I know you have said before on this show that it can start out as one thing but it can it can snowball into other things other benefits from it too because sometimes chewing feels good oh yeah absolutely and that's why a lot of times when you have chewing behavior you want to actually replace it with chewing something that's more appropriate right like gum or something yeah. like that but yeah it is a, a very very sensory type activity and so again you'd have to identify why it started and, and then okay. we treat it from there all right great and if you need more information you'll write into us and we'll be happy to ask uh, a follow-up of dr. Grand Pichet. We're going to take a short break and we're going to be back with more of your questions that are coming in both on the Facebook and the live feature. So stick with us. Hello, activists. Let's talk about step seven. Recognize your gifts and abilities. Whatever gifts and abilities you had before autism entered your life, you have them now. And I bet you've developed some that you didn't even know you had. Those gifts and abilities are gonna help you in your journey of parenting a child with autism spectrum disorders. Maybe you're a born researcher, teacher, negotiator, or organizer. Well, you're gonna need all of those talents and you could find a whole new calling. That's what happened to me. If you had told me 20 years ago that I was gonna leave behind a career as a television producer to work as an autism advocate and activist, I would have said, you're nuts. If you don't think you have any special gifts or abilities, ask someone who loves you. 
They'll tell you what they are. I guarantee you, you have them. What's your special gift? Find it, use it for yourself, for your child, for the good of all concerned. Until next time, keep the faith. Welcome back to Autism Live and to Ask Dr. Doreen. We're here with Dr. Doreen Grampache, an expert in the field of autism and working with children on the autism spectrum for multiple decades. Uh, she is a great resource. If you have questions, you can be writing them in on the live feature at autism-live.com. And also, we're taking questions right now on our Facebook page, Autism Live on Facebook. This just came in on the Facebook page. My 10-year-old has side effects from risperidone. He can't take ADHD meds. Uh, what could his doctor try for him next? Why the, um, that's a tough one to answer, but the question is why is he on risperidol to begin with? Okay. So, um, you know, risperidol tends to uh, reduce everything. It's an antipsychotic. It basically will put you down, you know, it'll make you a little bit more lethargic. So it is often used for things like treating behaviors. It's also used for treating self-stimulatory behaviors and so on. And I often, very, very few of our kids, and I'm talking, you know, 2,000 kids at CARD, very, very few of them are, are on Risperdal, actually, because uh, because we try to gain control over their behaviors through behavioral means, yeah. you know, intervention. So ideally, you would not really want to be using both Medicaid. Obviously, you're not going to be using Risperdal and, let's say, Adderall together. That would be kind of difficult. So um, I'm not sure. I, you know, I, I think you need to try to uh, titrate off the Risperdal and then perhaps then you can actually start working a little bit more with the ADHD medications if necessary. But it would be probably a good idea to see a psychopharmacologist who can help balance his medications a little bit more than just a, let's say a psychiatrist or a neurologist. Um, and then you would also really want to have behavioral interventions that can help reduce the need for some of the meds. Yeah, and just on, on a related note, I, I want to say as a parent and I, as I get to meet parents all the time, uh, one of the things we're really talking about this year is quality ABA. Because I yes. think one of the heartbreaks that I find is I meet a parent who says, well, we tried ABA for a little while. We had right. like 12 hours a week and we had it with this company and they weren't getting it done. And so our our doctor put him on this medicine. I didn't really want to go on the medicine. I didn't want to put my child on the medicine, but it was what I was told was going to work. And my heart breaks for that parent because they weren't given the full choice or they, chances or the prescription for what was actually going to work if they had point, done Jan, ABA. Yeah, yeah it's such a um, good point. And, they, and then they gave up on it because they were told, well, that's not working. So they went against their gut instinct, put their child on medicine. And now they're finding out that in some cases, their young boys are developing breasts because mm, of this mm, medication mm -hmm. and and a lot of times these parents feel left out but I, I would ask if you could say a couple of words on how effective quality ABA is as opposed to 
some people are out there doing a very watered down version of ABA. Yeah, this is really, really, really important. Um, thank you very much for bringing this up. I, you know, it's kind of like, it's so outside my universe that I forget because for, I don't know, how long have I been doing ABA now? Uh, well, that can't be. <laughs> Can that, is that true? It's like, I don't know, you know, more than 30 years. Right. So, um, 34 or 5 years, a long, long, long time. And I have to say, I've never really known anything other than really high-quality ABA and actually pretty intensive ABA. In other words, uh, you know, obviously when I have Asperger's adolescents, let's say, or, um, you know, teenagers who have just a few issues or very, very high-functioning, let's say, children who, have, who used to have a PDD diagnosis who are very high-functioning as well, I would not be doing a 40-hour program, but I'd be doing a lot of work. It's kind of like tutoring, if you look at it this way. This is very, very important stuff. If you have a child who is um, not doing very well on a class, let's say a math class or whatever, and you give them instruction uh, an hour and a half, you know, one hour and a half session a week, they're going to learn during that time, but just so much. So their grades might go from a D to a C or, you know, from a D minus to a D plus. It's very simple. Uh, if you give them 10 hours of instruction, they might actually shoot all the way up to an A. It's just a matter of how much support and help you give. Now, that is one aspect of it, which is the actual quantity. Now, the other aspect of it is if you have a tutor who goes to teach your child, you know, calculus and all they really know is geometry, your child's not going to get a lot better in calculus. So you really want to make sure that the person who is working with your child is not just, you know, working on reducing behaviors because, and we've talked about this numerous times, the majority of people who get trained in this field um, are very focused, and this is just because of the way things are taught. This is gradually changing, but you know the con the field of ABA is very much focused on behavior and changing behavior. It's not. It, it's um, so while behavior analysts are very good at changing behavior, um, they they aren't comfortable or let's say they don't have access to curriculum materials so they don't know uh, you know a behavior that they're changing let's say it's uh, tantruming and I want to reduce the tantrums a behavior analyst can really do that very well but this is a nonverbal child and I want to teach the child to speak that is something that is still a behavior that I want to increase mm -hmm. but the behavior analyst really doesn't have a whole lot of training on how to produce speech how to you know, and they have to have had the experience um, learned from or use or use a curriculum like skills. Skills is our curriculum, obviously, or work with a speech pathologist or, you know, gain some expertise in that area over the course of the years so that they can adequately handle whatever the issues are. So quality and quantity of ABA is an enormous issue and it, I agree with you it breaks my heart as well when I hear parents saying I did ABA it didn't really work ABA works period if it's good quality ABA and if it's enough it works yeah. if it's not working 
that means it's either not enough or not good enough. So one of those two things, and it's just, you know, that's It's never the child. It is never the child, never the child. It's, it's always just the procedures, the amounts, the techniques, you know, is the child being reinforced adequately? Is the, are the instructions clear enough? And so we don't want to assume with this parent who wrote in about the, the Risperdone and, and, and the meds, but we, we certainly want to encourage you that if you, to, to make sure that you've exhausted your possibilities of dealing with this behaviorally. Exactly. Uh, that if you haven't found the person that you feel like really addressed it behaviorally, keep asking until you find that person. That's exactly while right. You're, while you're also talking to your doctor uh, about medications, because some children, as you mentioned, very few, but some children, that's going to be the go-to. Absolutely. I mean, and, and, you know, I said very few in terms of Risperdal. I don't really like Risperdal, you know. It's too much for our kids. It's too much for anyone. It is one of the very few FDA-approved medications for autism. But, you know, there are other medications that I'm very strong proponent of for our kids, medications that help control their anxiety and so on and so forth. But... Having said that, you know, it is very difficult if you have a child with an ADHD diagnosis, for instance, or children who need ADHD medications, you know, they really are just functioning at a very much higher speed, so. Okay. All right. Very good information. We're going to take another short break, and we'll be back with more of your questions, so stick with us. Welcome back to Smarty. It's January and a whole new year has gone by. To commemorate that, Autism Live and Smarty have decided to give you a template to make your very own time capsule. The materials you'll be needing are glue, a jar, photos, keepsakes, pen, and a template you can print from facebook.com slash autismlive. Here's the template that I printed out from our Facebook page. Depending on the skill of your child, they can do this independently or you're going to help them fill out all the questions. Once you have finished filling out the time capsule sheet, I've left two spaces on the top, one for a school photo, one for a family photo. Feel free to glue an image there. Now that I've glued the photos onto my sheet, now I'm going to grab my jar and start filling it up with all the things I would want to remember from the year that just passed. I would say include photos, mementos, toys, things that are going to be really important to you at this time and moment that you'll be excited to see later in the future. Once you're done filling up your jar with all the things that were important to you for the year 2013, you're going to want to seal it up. And it's up to you for how long you want to keep it locked up. Time capsules are a great way to remember where you have been and where you're going. So, I hope you really enjoy this activity, and until next time, craft on, guys. Can you see me flying by your side? Welcome back to Ask Dr. Doreen. Dr. Doreen Grampache is here with us in the studio answering your questions. We just had something come in on the live feature. Hello, Dr. Doreen and Shannon. I have a question for Dr. Doreen. What is the best strategy for behavior function escape with behaviors like screaming, acting silly, throwing themselves to the floor, mouthing? We tried not to let escape happen, but she tries 
all and it's very time consuming. I want to make sure we're doing the best technique. We know it's escape because when on the high pick she asks for a break. When the break is given, she will request break every minute. Any advice is appreciated. Please give us some light. We love you. Thank you. Mm, that's great. Thank you so much. So good job, first of all. Like, what a great question. Well, so, you know, so basically let's remember what all this means. What all this means is that she's doing all those behaviors. And what were they? They were it's screaming herself on the floor, screaming, acting silly, acting silly, mouthing and mouthing objects. Mouthing isn't usually escape maintained. Um, I, I have a hard time with that one. So okay. to reevaluate re the function of mouthing. But the other two very common, obviously, acting silly and, um, you know, trying to avoid doing something um, and throwing right. yourself on the floor yeah. and so on and so forth. So the whole, the whole process is when something happens and you've identified the function and you've identified it to be escape, you will not allow the child to escape the task. So yes, it is very time consuming because now the child's throwing themselves on the ground. Try to prevent them. First of all, try to block the throwing for on the ground, throwing themselves on the ground. So in other words, I'm not sure what activity the child's escaping from, but let's assume it's uh, basic demands, you know, any kind of activity that you tell the child to do and they'll act silly and scream and throw themselves on the ground. Try to not, try to sit in a position or in a way that the child can't throw themselves on the ground. If they do throw themselves on the ground, you're going to have to motor them through uh, the activity so that they're not escaping it. Um, so a couple of things you could do is you could, and this has to do with the comprehension of the child, uh, you could increase the activity. In other words, there's a response cost system built into this, which means, oh, if you throw yourself on the ground, I'm still going to force you to do it, but now you actually have to do it more, like longer or, you know, more objects or whatever it is. So there's sort of a kind of a punitive aspect to it and the child starts to realize this isn't really worth it because not only I'm not getting away with it anymore I am not able to escape doing this behavior that's the message that you want to get to your child is this is not going to be a functional form of communication for you to escape yeah. having said that you've already given your child the ability to say break and then now you're saying your child is abusing the ability to say break that's okay. What you do is you will start on a timer. So like you can start to, when the child asks for a break, first of all, you give the very, very, very short break initially. And then what you'll do is from the time they start, you'll start now counting two to five seconds before you give it to them. So essentially you're giving them a break. You're giving them a very short break and you're gradually having them learn to wait before their break. Another thing you could do, and this again depends on the child's comprehension level, is you will still give the break, but you'll require the child, you'll gradually start to require the child to request break five times before they get a break. So every time they ask for a break, you put a thing on the table and it'll accumulate to five and then you'll give them a break. So you can increase the latency, you can increase the demand request. There's a lot of things that a behavior analyst can help you do. This really has to do with the comprehension level of the child. Um, don't worry that your child's overusing the break request. Um, here's another thing you can do is, again, depending on where your child is, you can increase the demand, the, the, the 
criteria for how they ask for a break. In other words, you can for have the child start having to say, I want break, like use it to get more language. Um, you know, so those are the types of things that you do. Um, and then you'll just, I, I would recommend, because I don't know your child very well, I really do think this is one of those things that would be very useful to have a behavior analyst with you. Um, if you go on the VIP Builder, the VIP Builder will give you other ideas as well of how to control um, escape behavior. And also always remember, you're not, you can't deal with four, five, six topographies all at once. It's a little difficult. If you, if, you know, if they're all function-based, then you're going to have to really, the, the same function, if they're all escape-based, you know, uh, type behaviors, then it's going to be kind of tough to prevent all of them from happening. So it's kind Absolutely. of a little bit difficult right now. What my mind goes back to is when I think Jem was in first or second grade, we went through a rough patch where he didn't want to do his homework. Yeah. He wanted to come home. And, and what had happened before that is that he would come home and there would be a therapist there when he got home from school. And the first thing that they would do was play with him, you know, to get him into where they could work with him for therapy, right? Now all of a sudden he was a little bit older, the therapist was coming a little bit later, and, and I had a wedge of time in which the homework had to happen. Yeah. Otherwise it was going to be bedtime. I couldn't move it around. Right. Or at least I didn't see that I could in that moment. And boy, he didn't want not want to do it, right? And I didn't feel like I had a whole lot of options. But so instead I just fought with him. Yeah. And what would happen is the therapist would get there and, and you know, the house would be dis in disarray. He'd have ripped up the homework, pencils would right. be everywhere. Right. And then we'd have to work backwards, lose half the session. And finally, you know, I bought a vowel and said, I think I need some help here. Yeah. Uh, I consider myself a fairly intelligent person and this wasn't our first dog and pony right. show with ABA, I kind of knew some things and I knew that he was trying to escape it. But the therapist came a half hour early and we went through all everything that was happening. And, after, and she said, on Thursday, this is what we're going to do. And you have to be really well slept for this. Mm. And I went, oh. <laughs> oh, wait, I got, I have something, and there's an antecedent for me as well. I have to be well slept. And so, and she had me mentally prepared and said, this is how we're going to do this. He came home and I was very nice with him. We had a lovely moment. I gave him a couple of minutes. And then I said, it's time to do the homework. And he got up there. And the first thing that he would do is he would throw his pencil on the floor. And then, and then in the amount of time that I would have to bend over to pick up the pencil and give it back to him, that was escape. Mm -hmm. it, it was maintaining itself, right? So I had a cup of pencils that were already there. So he would throw the pencil, no reaction when he would throw the pencil, no discussion about why he's throwing the pencil. I would stick another pencil in his hand and put my hand over his and start to write. Well, I was so glad a therapist was there because then he realized I'm not going to get out of this. So. It, he upped the stakes, right? <laughs> and so the you know papers are on the floor. I had extra papers because the therapist had prepared me. And then he flung himself on the floor, and I went with him on the floor, no escape, pencil over his hand, and and was still writing the thing on the floor with him saying, "What's happening? Yeah, <laughs> what, what's happening?" And I, no reaction from me at all. I just continued to move his hand right. and, as you said, motor him through the thing. Yeah. And, you know, he kicked, he screamed, whatever. And I, no matter what, and the therapist kept talking to me and we kept writing. And finally he said, can I get up? 
Yeah. And I said, yes, but we kept the pencil on the paper as he got up so there was no break in it. It was the last time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, our kids are smarter than, than you think, you know? But thank you for saying that because it's so important also to, I mean, that is, that's a really great example of not only you know, preventing escape behavior, but also letting the child understand that uh, you will not really give a huge amount of attention to negative behavior. Having said that, the other side that I wanted to make sure I address with this family is the positive aspect, which is, you know, if your child is trying to escape a task, you should be reducing the, the complexity of the task and increasing the reinforcer anyway. Okay, so on the one hand, you want to reduce the escape behavior, obviously, and teach the child a more appropriate way to do it, which is ask for a break. On the other hand, you should make sure that the child is, is enjoying the task or it's not over their head. Um, to the point where it's, uh, you know, hopeless and they need to escape it. So the easiest way to avoid, to, to reduce escape behavior is not let the escape occur, as Shannon said, and reward the child for actually doing the task. So really increase your reinforcers. That will really reduce your child requesting a break because they'll be enjoying the activity. Yeah. So that's number one. So, you know, that's the most important thing is always look at the activity and make sure it's fun and e possible to do. And of course, that's the part that I would I forget. But of course, the therapist had built in too that there was going to be a big reward for getting the homework done. There you go. That he got a big reward that if, if there was a timer and if he got the homework done within a certain amount of time without yeah. all the shenanigans, right. that he got to do something that he really there wanted There you go. And that's but, of, a... but of course, I would forget that part. Sure, and then and of course there's the there's the the key as well is that the child understands that, you know, a child who's asking for a ton of breaks obviously isn't going to be able to complete a certain number of items within a time frame. If you want them to pay attention to the time frame, you use a timer. If you want them to just get through a certain number of activities, you can cross off each one or put a check mark as she completes them. Again, it really does. It has more to do with the task that your child is trying to avoid but uh, you increase reinforcers for doing the task and then uh, you know, prevent the child from using those uh, tactics to take breaks. But I, I, I also appreciate the parent saying it's so time consuming and it's energy it is very consuming. Time. And very, I loved very. that therapist saying to me, we're gonna do this on Thursday and you have to have this together. You gotta have the cup of pencils, you gotta have extra papers and you have to be slept right. uh, really well because otherwise, and, and can I just be honest and say, there's no way that I could have fallen, uh, <laughs> I followed through on that intervention if I hadn't had somebody talking me through it. Sure. And and saying you're doing a great job, don't give up now, and all that stuff. So I, I go back to you saying get get your ABA uh, team on board with whatever the intervention is because yeah. it it takes a village. Yeah, and, and yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it, it really does. does. It really does. And like for this child again, you know, if she's overusing the concept of asking for a break. 
then have a certain number of things required before each break. So like you have to answer five items before the break and then you'll get a major reinforcer. Like those simple manipulations help things a lot. Okay. Um, you, that was a great example. I'm proud of that therapist. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I had the best. What am I, you know, we're always saying that I had the best, uh, which is why I'm always trying to pay it forward. Uh, we have an, uh, a question that came from, we have a, a young mom who's studying to be a BCBA who's watching the show and loving it and I'll have to share the, the whole great. email with you. But she messaged us on Facebook and said, my question for today, uh, we've, we've talked a lot on the show about the ABCs of behavior and and having, you know, putting the paper and folding it in three. So you got the A column for the antecedent, the B column for the behavior and the C column for the consequence. Um, and she's saying for the A and the C of the ABC recording to work out the function of a behavior, how far into the past and future do you go? I'm sure with some behaviors, the function is obvious, but if it's not clear, would the person doing the function assessment look beyond the immediate antecedents and consequences? I can imagine there are behaviors which might be influenced by what someone ate for breakfast, even though the behavior is happening hours later. Um, and she goes on to say a while ago you were you had somebody talking about how their child's behavior had become much worse when she changed his diet uh, similarly though delayed gratification would generally be something we'd aspire to i can imagine a, a family being so stressed by a meltdown that that evening they compensate for the day's stress by not cooking and ordering in a pizza and then the child has sussed out that every time he gives them a rotten day he ends up having his favorite food mm. so but i love this question about how far do we go back if we're if the child has had a tantrum and we're filling in the behavior and we filled in what the consequence was how far back do we go for um, the antecedent and and how far forward do we actually go for the consequence right that's an awesome question it's a question that would only come from a mom <laughs> moms are thinking about so many other things so I would say the general answer to that is that you go further back the higher functioning the child is. Okay. So if a child is uh, sort of very, very severely impacted by autism in terms of like just not really being able to comprehend cognitive concepts yet, uh, then it's more likely that the antecedent is pretty immediate. Um, if the child's very, very high functioning and you're looking at a child who's more of a child with Asperger's or really high functioning child, then yes, it could entirely be true that this is a longer term influence so in other words it's a manipulation of some type or some antecedent that occurred you know yesterday even could be producing the behavior the example that you give is a very interesting example especially for someone who's becoming a behavior analyst so you you use the example of of like the motivation is to want food, a certain food and then to act out because when i act out the family is overwhelmed and mom doesn't have time to cook and we may get pizza you know that would be a very simple thing to have it to break that is entirely possible of yeah. course absolutely our kids do this you know no question about it you could easily break that and order out, but order, you know, Indian food, something the child might not necessarily like, I don't know. <laughs> so then they'll figure it out. That's a very smart child. That's what I love about our kids. That's why I often tell, when I, at intake, when I talk to our parents, I'm often asking them about these types of manipulative behaviors because they do ind indicate intelligence. Like, 
when you have a very intelligent child and they manipulate you, what are they doing? They're understanding the function of your behavior and figuring out how to manipulate your behavior by producing those particular antecedents. So that's terrific that your child's doing that. Now, you brought a, it's a really fascinating example because you, you um, used food. So food happens to be one of those things that has an extremely long, let's say, half-life, um, more than anything else. In other words, uh, food as a positive reinforcer or food as a negative, as a punishment, tends to have the longest effect of anything that exists. So in other words, um, let's put it this way, it is extremely strong in its effect and it is extremely durable. So some examples. Um, you know, they had these uh, experiments where they had wolves and a wolf would be with a uh, flock of sheep and would attack the flock of sheep, obviously, and, and eat the sheep. And then this would become something that obviously wolves can smell that out. And it's a very, very, very strong conditioned response, right? Mm -hmm. So anytime there's a sheep nearby, the wolf will attack it. Now. The sheep were then uh, injected with something that made their um, skin smell different. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, in another experiment, they were given, um, they, were, they had something put on their skin that was toxic to the wolves. Not toxic in, the point, uh, in terms of killing them, but in terms of making them sick, vomit. And the conditioning was so strong when it had to do with a conditioned food aversive, so eating something that made them puke later, mm -hmm. that there was no way they could recondition the wolf to ever eat sheep again. Wow. So food tends to be, that's it's our primary reinforcer as well, it tends to just have a different effect than anything else. So yes, the pizza thing is very, very possible. However, let's say if the child figures out that if I mess with my family and they're extremely exhausted and so then, you know, they're going to let me sleep later, that might not happen. Okay. But food will very likely happen because kids get conditioned to food so fast and it's such a strong, enduring conditioning yeah. stimulus. But I mean, going back to your general question, yeah, it could go back, the motivation or the function could go back pretty far. Those more abstract or complicated functions tend to happen more the more the child understands. Okay. So the older the child, the higher the functioning of the child, the further back you would want to go. Yes. Great rule of thumb. Yes. I love that. That would never have occurred to me. Uh, okay. we got a couple of uh, more questions here. Uh, something that just came in. Thanks, Dr. Doreen, for all the great tips, Shannon. Thank you for sharing your story on escape behavior. I wish I'm able to do that for my 10-year-old's undesirable behaviors. He taps his fingers, hum loudly, jumps up and down sometimes and this draws a lot of attention I don't know the exact function but it looks like this it looks like about 60% sensory plus 10% habit plus 10% attention seeking plus 10% escape behavior plus 10% testing my patience uh, <laughs> I want to do the math on that does it add up to 100 uh, for example he does these behaviors in his school bus and other typical kids giggle at each other while my child does not have a clue on getting embarrassed I'm worried if he's going to be like this 
forever. Any tips would be great. Thank you, Dr. Doreen and Shannon. Great question. I, you know, I have to say it kind of fits with, we, we had another question that came in from a teacher about uh, these kinds of behaviors and how other kids react to them. So uh, along the same lines. Um, so tapping fingers, <sighs> humming loudly, jumping up and down sometimes, and this draws a lot of attention, uh, but looks like 60% sensory, 10% habit, 10% attention seeking, 10% escape behavior and 10% testing my patients. Yeah. So testing my patients is attention seeking, by the way. Okay. It's the same so now thing. we're at 20% for yeah. seeking attention. Right. Because testing your patients means you lose it, and that is attention. That's good theater. When you lose it, <laughs> yeah. I'm convinced. Yeah. When we lose that it, they, that they, is attention. Look yeah. at that. That's better than the TV. That's better than Nickelodeon. Mom's hair is standing straight up on end. Yes, <laughs> it is. It's humorous. So um, I guess... It, you you have to identify the function of each behavior. So I just you know there's no way to do it other than that. When you have this many behaviors going on at the same time, it's too much for you as a mom to want to deal with. Generally, you will need a behavior analyst. The behavior analyst will typically identify all the functions, but then will start to deal with. I guess the most important first, and the most important being the one that is the most harmful <clears throat> to your child. Embarrassment is a completely different concept. Let's not even go there for a minute. I mean, I understand that you don't like the fact that he's not paying, he's not aware that other kids are laughing, and I would feel the same way, but that's a whole different instructional issue than behaviors. So if you think that a large portion of this is sensory, make sure that your child has other appropriate means of gaining sensory stimulation. Um, tapping his fingers, perhaps your child is musical and needs to have some form of musical activity that will help satisfy the need to do this, like playing the drums. You know, that always takes me back to our little guy who used yes. to always do this and now he's a fabulous drummer right he's a professional so, drummer he's a professional drummer and you need to you you will take that need and put it into something that's more appropriate you know um i don't remember what the other ones were so uh, humming loudly jumping up and down yeah exactly so the humming and tapping would indicate to me that your child should probably be involved in some musical activity separately singing drumming with headphones that would give the child the ability to have a period of time each day uh, multiple times a day where they can sing hum um, you know tap uh, play musical instruments uh, jump up and down dance all of that and you will constrain it to uh, that period of time and they can't then it can't be done at other times if the function is escape at other times, you just make sure they're not escaping anything. But I don't know if the function is attention seeking, you give it a lot of attention if it's during that time frame that I mentioned, but you don't give it attention if it's outside of that time frame. There, you just, it seems like there are too many th behaviors going on at the same time and it sounds like you're uh, pretty exhausted and wiped out from it. And I really do recommend that you try to get a behavior analyst to give guidance just on this most behavior analysts would be able to guide you through this. Um, another thing you can do is you can go on our the BIP builder, uh, just get 
you know, for three behaviors or five behaviors, answer those questions. It'll instruct you step by step what to do. Another thing you could do is just get the module on how to handle challenging behavior from IBT. I mean, you do have some resources. Um, ideally, of course, if you have a behavior analyst who has a team of therapists, you know, I would love to be able to just say that's where you should go. But I know that in a lot of the uh, world, you don't have those resources and, and you'll have to learn these things yourself and apply them. But it is very beneficial to learn these things and apply them because they help you throughout life. It never really ends. I mean, my children are much older and I, my children, forget about just your children, you apply behavioral techniques throughout your life all the time. So the more you know, the better you'll do. And I, and I, what I'm hearing, and I'm sort of applying this to our whole topic last week was chunk, chunk it, uh, for everything that we have to do in life, because everything can be so overwhelming to us, sensory stuff, and, and I got to do this for my child, and I got to do this for my job, and I got to do, you know, it's all coming from, and we can't do it all in the same moment, That's but right. to chunk it, and what I heard you say is prioritize this. That's right. What, what behaviors do you want to work on between three and five? What's the priority? And the rest of it, you're going to have to let it go for a couple of minutes because you can't carry this whole thing. And then our, our whole topic this week is taking action. So once you've prioritized and said, these are the three behaviors that I'm looking at and seeing are the biggest problem and, I, and I'm looking at it and the embarrassment is a, a, an issue, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save that for a month from now or two months from now, but deciding how am I going to take action on this with the resources that you have available to you. Right. You know, she kind of gave you a good, better, best. Best is that you go to your ABA team and say, let's work on this together. What's the plan? Uh, you know, here's the BIP builder. Let's build the, the plan together. You're going to implement it at, at this place, you give it to the school so they can, and then you're doing it at home. But if you don't have that option, there are lots of other ways that you can get at it. That's right. Um, but you can't try to do it all today. Right. And you can't do all these behaviors all in one fell swoop. I love Dr. Tarbox always says to us, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Yeah. Sometimes I don't know which end of the elephant do I start at. That's true. But you know, you're going to look at it and you're going to, uh, with based on what Dr. Grandpache just said, you're going to look at it and say, all right, this is where I'm going to start. Right. And then take some action on it today. Yeah. And I know life gets so busy and we're constantly trying to just keep up with life, yeah. you know, and sometimes you have to like, just take a breath and make a plan. That's the more important thing. It's not about dealing with it every second of the day, but it's actually about you know, maybe you should be focusing your energy on how do I actually get a team of behavior analysts in here rather than trying to fix it yourself. Sometimes it's just overwhelming and we yep. need some help. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So write back to us if you need some help figuring out prioritizing or how to get a team working with you or how to get your team all on the same page, whatever it is that you need at this moment to help you to get to the next level, write back to us and, and we'll be happy to address that as well. We're unfortunately out of time mm -hmm. and there were so many more questions but we always keep them in the mix and next week we'll have the opportunity to answer some of those questions and more that you guys send in thank, thank you. you so much That's for being here i learned pleasure. so much always every time pleasure. you're here thank you all right we are going to take a break and go to the a word before we do that one more thing i want to remind everybody we told you yesterday that there's a mom who is asking for people if you've got a second to make a card for her son who's about to turn 12 he's had a little bit of a rough patch and is 
wanting to make some friends and she really wants to make this birthday special for him. His name is Logan Pearson. You can go on our Facebook page and read about where you can send a birthday card. We've talked about taking action and sometimes doing one small thing can make all the difference for somebody. Imagine the difference it will make for this child if he receives hundreds of birthday cards. Uh, we can do this. We can make this happen. So again, Logan Pearson, look on Facebook and you'll see more information about that. We have until the last week in February in which to do this. But right now we're going to go to the A Word. This is an amazing ongoing documentary being made by the Center for Autism and Related Disorders following a little boy, Jack Riley. He was diagnosed with autism at the age of two. Now in real life, Jack Riley is five and going to school and is just doing so remarkably well it puts a grin on my face but we're journeying back in time now in the series back to when Jack Riley had just started therapy when the parents were saying we don't know how this works we don't know how this is going to help our child and all of that uh, indecision to see where Jack Riley started and then you have the opportunity to watch the series two years later to see how far he has come so take a look this is the A word function for it. It's just automatic to him. Hey, let's go find something better to play. Do you want to play with Legos? Say open. Ben, yeah. Open. So we just redirect it so that it doesn't become just a habit later. quickly more than we anticipated. This is the acoustics program we started with him. Say ba. Say 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 go. Good job. Say ya ya. Say ya ya. Try again. Say ya ya. That's close. Say ya ya. Say ya. To get him to begin talking, he needed to start with the basics. Every step is broken down to make the end goal manageable. The first step is making simple sounds. The idea is that once he has the sounds, he will be able to mix them together to enunciate words. Words give power. They are used to label, acquire, inquire. The end goal is to have these words come together to create sentences, to create conversation. Say what he wants, what he thinks, what he feels.
And even basketball. his ball is better now. It used to be ga consistently. He says ba. He said ba today, yeah. Spaghetti. One version of it. Yes, you like spaghetti. What's that? It's the moon. Yeah, that's the moon. That's right. And his spontaneous language has increased just one week of therapy. Hey, Jack Riley. Come here. Come look at my book. Or you want to look at my guitar? You want to look at my guitar? It's right here. You want it? Look. Tar. Good job. Good morning and welcome to Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy. I'm Nancy Allspot. And I'm Shannon Penrod. We're good so to be here. thrilled to with be you, here. My yes, it's good to be here with you and you're yeah. looking fabulous and as usual. And you look fabulous. I'm I'm trying. Did I'm trying you? to keep up with you. Well, I don't know. I went to Fantastic <laughs> Sam's and got a blow dry. That's my secret. I, is that where I go? I go to Supercuts. Courtyard, they call it now. But anyway, it's there, just, yeah, <laughs> last, last year, week, it lasted me for a whole week. $25 lasted the whole week. That's amazing. Yeah, well, I didn't go running or do any physical activity it was all about the hair which I think you got to decide whether you wanted the body or the hair and I think I better go back to the body because I got to have that walking running thing well, I need to pick one quick <laughs> need to do. Anyway, uh, it's such a gorgeous day here in Southern California and I feel, I feel for all of you. Everybody else who's in snow, you're really going to tease world, them I that? spoke to family and friends in Virginia and North oh. Carolina this morning and oh, and especially it's hard for you who have kids on the spectrum because if you're snowbound and you're in the house and they're bored and they're not going to school, oh, I feel for you. I feel for you. Yeah, well, we've got a bunch of Smarties on, on our YouTube page. You can go and find a bunch of craft activities, things that you can do with your child if it's a snow day. Fantastic. Uh, Emily even put a link to it on Facebook yesterday, so you can go to our Facebook, check that out, click on the link, and good. Find that's some great. Things to do. Good, because we it's just it's brutal in in all around yeah. the country, and I hate even to say it. Even in the it. south. My yeah, goodness. and it's going to be up to 85 here today in the Los Angeles area. I'm so yes. sorry. I you know. Uh, <laughs> we need to be careful about how much we brag about that. An yeah. earthquake will come along, and then yeah, it'll that's all right. Be... Mudslides. We'll have. <laughs> Fire, fire the, yeah. Yeah, so don't uh, envy us. Do something, yes. All right, uh. so, um, well, we have a fascinating guest later today. Yes. Uh, Stella Waterhouse, a British educator, and now uh, she is an author, and she's got a new series of books. They're not out yet. She's asked me to write the foreword to the first book, and uh, it's uh, The Autism Code is the series, and I am telling you, I am enjoying reading this, and um, I'm a little bit... Um, I don't know, overwhelmed by the task of writing a, a, an a introduction to it, but um, I think we're going to really have a fascinating conversation with Absolutely. her. Absolutely. But we've got some stuff in the news now. This was an older story, and this was, uh, we, we get a lot of articles sent to us from Senator Steinberg's office, yes. Bob Giovanni, who works there with Dr. Lou Vesmara, and he's always sending interesting articles, and he said this one was written a while ago, and it was written by a woman named Rose Eveleth, 
and it was called The Hidden Potential of Autism, Autistic Kids. Why intelligence tests might be overlooking what come, when it comes to autism, what they might be overlooking. And the author, Rose Eveleth, goes on to say that when she was in fifth grade, she has two brothers with autism, by the way, uh, her brother Alex started correcting her homework. And uh, it wouldn't have been weird except that he was in kindergarten and autistic. And she said that um, he, even 15 years later, can barely scratch out his name, but he could look at my page of neatly written words or math problem and pick out the ones that were wrong. So she uses that as sort of a jumping off point to say that many researchers are starting to rethink how much we really know about those with autism and their abilities. And what they are really starting to understand is that most of what the, these diagnoses focus on what autistic people cannot do, rather on what they can do. And so, um, for a long time, researchers have considered the majority of those affected by autism to be mentally retarded. Although the numbers cited vary, they generally fall between 70 to 80 percent of the affected population. But recently, a researcher at Willamette University uh, was surprised to find anything. There was nothing conclusive. She said that um, the conclusions were based on intelligent tests that tend to overestimate disability in autistic people. Our knowledge is based on pretty bad data. Um, this hidden potential was recently acknowledged by a, woman, a man named Laurent Matron. He's a psychiatrist at the University of Montreal. And in the November 3rd issue of Nature, he recounts his own experience with working with high-functioning adults in his lab, which showed him the power of the autistic brain rather than its limitations. And um, the standard intelligence tests don't often show the, the person with autism's fresh and useful ways of seeing the world. Um, they go on to mention, in particular, the WISC. And I think a lot of us are familiar with that test. It's yes. the Wexler Intelligence Scale for Children. Uh, it's, it, it goes on to say here that it almost seems to design to flunk a person with autism. It is completely verbal. Uh, time test that relies heavily on cultural and social knowledge. Asking questions like, what is the thing to do if you find an envelope in the street that is sealed addressed and has a new stamp on it? And what is the thing to do when you cut your finger? So um, she goes on to say that her brother uh, was kicked out of uh, a school because of not, you know, not being able to be still enough to take the test and uh, a lot of the questions that he answered, for example, what do you do, what, you find out someone is getting married, what is an appropriate question to ask them? And her brother's answer was, what kind of cake are you having? Now, that would probably be my son Wyatt's question. I don't, I don't know about Jim. It wouldn't be, who are you marrying? Uh, you know, it wouldn't be that kind of thing. Yeah, Jim wouldn't ask that. He wouldn't ask about the cake because he doesn't eat cake. Right. And doesn't really know what regular cake tastes like. Right. So that probably wouldn't be his question. But he would ask something like... Uh, you know, are you doing it at night? Right. You know, right. I, it wouldn't necessarily be who are you marrying or how yes. when did you meet them. It yeah. wouldn't be socially Socially where involved. you would think. Okay. Yeah. So, her, so the, the, the person who was doing the testing said to her brother, no, that's not a correct answer. Try again. He furrowed his brow in the way we all have learned to be wary of. That's, it's the face that happens before you start to shut down and said, I don't, 
I don't have another question. That's what I would ask. And that was that. Um, she would not move on without that one. He failed the question and never right. finished the test. Right. So she's saying the testing doesn't have to be like this. There's another measure. The Raven's Progressive Matrices or the Test of Nonverbal Intelligence, Tony. Um, and they ask children um, to complete designs and patterns, and they're mostly nonverbal instructions, but yet they're often not used. So what the the gist of this is that we need to look at the hidden potential. We need to give our children tests um, and materials that they can optimally process. And um, we have to kind of get a grasp on that they do not learn the same way other children do. And it ends with more and more people are starting to wonder what gems might lie hidden in the autistic brain, and if my brothers are any indication, if we keep looking, we will find them. And I, I, I thought this was just a very refreshing article. Um, evidently, it has not trickled down to the schools yet. <laughs> oh, oh, no. Oh, no, it is not. <laughs> because I'm going through this right now with Wyatt's uh, IEP testing, which has shown extremely low scores. And, you know, yet my son on the way to school this morning was reading a biography of Leonardo da Vinci and telling me about the way that he made paint with, you know, um, broken eggshells and things like this. And so I'm listening to my son reading Leonardo da Vinci in the back seat and trying to reconcile that with them saying he has borderline intelligence, you know. So we know that these things, these tests that are being used in the school are not geared to nonverbal kids. So we need a, a sea change there. Absolutely. And I, I was saying right before we came on the air, my, my whole theory of testing a former teacher, uh, is that the test is only as good as the people who wrote it, right? Yes. And what you take away from the test is your choice. And my theory always with my child is if I like the test results, then it's valid. And if I don't like the test results, it's not valid. <laughs> it's very simple. It works for me. And, and can I tell you that early on when Jem got tested and they would sit there with me and they would tell me what the test results were, and I think most people would have run out into the street and yeah. just said, let, let me be hit by a car. Right. The thing that they were telling me it oh, was yeah. so so bad oh yeah um so low uh, sure. at, that I I you know just take your breath away and I was like it means nothing and I meant it I felt it and I meant it and I left and I said because you can't really test somebody at this point mm -hmm. uh you just can't and later on when the test results were infinitely better I was like well I like that so we're mm -hmm. gonna keep that mm -hmm. <laughs> right uh you gotta take it with a grain of salt yeah. well I'm still really... in the I don't like this I don't believe this I don't think you're testing it's it correctly and and uh, we'll see, you know, I'm, I'm going to keep pushing to get his true potential uh, valued and, and measured as opposed to what uh, some test that was developed, yeah. I don't know how many years ago, that certainly doesn't take into account the strengths and weaknesses of our kids on the spectrum. You need to be reading a little Booker T. Washington, because Booker T. Washington said there are a lot of people who will look at a dandelion and they will see a weed, and there are other people who will see uh, something that has the ability to be a medicine. Mm -hmm. Something that is a beautiful flower <laughs> that can go in a salad, right? There are more than one way of looking at these Absolutely. things, right? Yeah. Okay. So uh, another big thing that's been all over the news in the last 48 hours, of course, we've switched to the DSM-5 now. Right. 
And we've been told, uh, we, we knew a long time ago that we were going to be switching to the DSM-5, and there were some studies that came out that suggested that it was going to be very bad for the autism community, mm -hmm. that a lot of people were no longer going to qualify for the diagnosis, and it put a lot of fear into a lot of people's heart. Well, a new study has come out uh, in this last week in the Journal of American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry suggesting that part of the problem with those original studies was that it didn't take into account the new diagnosis that appears in the DSM-5 of SCD, uh, and that when they now... And SCD stands for? It's sensory... Uh, i, I got to see if I can find it here. Okay. It's, it's a sensory something... Sensory communication disorder, I believe, okay. is what it breaks okay. down to. Social communication... Social, Excuse right. me, disorder. Um, and that... Our, our big fear at this moment in time is that th this study has shown that all of the children who they were concerned about before, if you were to break it down and say, now with the new DSM-5, anybody who was diagnosed even five years ago, would they qualify? About 83% of them would qualify, and the other percent would get this SCD right. uh, diagnosis. Because what I, from what I understand, that diagnosis, they don't have the same narrow areas of interest in repetitive behaviors. They simply have the social delays. Right. So, um, but the issue that this study has said is as long as we make sure that there is funding for those individuals when they get that diagnosis, then this should be a seamless transition and no one should be left without help. There's a big asterisk there. And Autism Speaks was a part of this study and they have said that there is great concern that there will be some young people who will get this diagnosis and will not have access to funding. So in the coming days, we'll, we'll probably need to arm up as people in this community and make sure and fight for those individuals to get insurance as well. Right, so uh, they can have uh, possibly social skills and absolutely. You know, whatever they need to, to bridge those gaps. Now the good news is is that if we, if we fight for that, for insurance to cover that, it will lead to better social programs that will help all of our kids on the autism right, spectrum. Right. Uh, so let's hope for that direction. And again, this was a study that was in part funded by Autism Speaks. Okay. And they are taking the results of it and fighting to make sure that those individuals, they're saying that it's roughly about 14% won't fit the criteria anymore and that we've got to fight for funding. It seems that in this moment in time, everyone who had a diagnosis before is going to be grandfathered in and they will get their insurance and it will be seamless. But moving forward, it could be a problem for people. You know, Newly it used, diagnosed. used to be that it was PDD-NOS. If your right. child got a PDD-NOS, right. you were left in no man's right. land. Right, that's and what you we got, got and initially. We, right. Is that what you got initially? No, we yeah. got we got classic autism. Yes, and you yes. know what? And I'm sure that on the day that you got the PDD-NOS, there was probably a little bit of relief on at, oh, least, yeah, at least my child doesn't have autism. But my child did have autism. They yeah. just, I mean, so clearly fit all the, the three areas in, in every way. But he wasn't eligible for the funding right. to get him the treatment that right. he needed. And yeah. that is what we all need to be mindful of yeah. moving forward, that we yeah. don't create another category of kids who get left right, out. Right, right. You know, um, just to refer back to this uh, last night was the State of the Union address. I kept waiting. Yes, I kept waiting, too. President Obama. I kept waiting to hear about what you're going to do for the one in 54 boys and one in 88 kids. But no, no mention.
No mention. And when, there was one point when he was talking about pre-existing conditions, and he says, and he said, uh, and he said asthma, and I, <laughs> and I, and I, and then he said in back problems, and and at another point he talked about cancer, and I realize he cannot talk about everything in that speech, I know, but there are I know. so many of us. I sat there on the couch too, and said, and and prayed, and said, please include us. Yeah. Please include us. Um, it didn't happen. No. Uh, I'm, that doesn't mean I'm giving up hope. No. Um, but I was disappointed. Me too. In any case, we have a great guest. Yes. Um, Stella Waterhouse is, a, she's a British uh, educator and author. And as I said, she's got a new series of books uh, called The Autism Code. And we're going to be with her via Skype when we come back. When you find out you're having a boy, you always think like, oh, he's going to play football, he's going to do this and that. And then when he's diagnosed, all those things get washed away. It's like that piece that's always in the back of your mind, you know, where is he, what is he doing, is he safe? We really didn't know what we were dealing with. I wish that they could have directed me a little bit more and provided me some information. I was a young mom. I didn't know what it was like to raise a boy despite a boy with autism. Hundreds of thousands of families are not getting the help they need for their children with autism all around the country. ACT Today is determined to bridge the gap. These families really have to go through a lot to get a grant. The application process isn't easy. The records, the diagnosis proof, they're really battling for their kids. So when we can give them a grant, it is so wonderful to see that they succeed in getting that help for their children. Our founder, Dr. Doreen Grampache, is an amazing woman, and she is one of the world's foremost authority on behavior of children with autism. She's extremely knowledgeable, and she oversees every single grant we give. She is part of that process. People may think of autism care and treatment as simply schooling or therapy, but you know, we provide important safety supports, things like fencing, for example. The whole family's living in fear of that child running out into traffic. I recently delivered an iPad to a little boy with some of the apps that are out there for children with autism. Miracles happen. I got the iPad from ACT. From ACT, What yeah. did it say? Can you repeat that, Dustin? I got the iPad from that. We have helped so many military families. And when I think of these brave families that are fighting two battles, one to protect our country and one for the right treatment and care for their children, it, it breaks my heart. And I think we have to do more as a nation to help them. There's not a day that doesn't go by that we don't think about it. Some people say, oh, he's normal. You don't see the battles that I see every single day. My husband does have to deploy, and when they get on that bus, that might be the last time that my kids ever see them. So I called, and then they informed me that he had received the grant, which was like a blessing from above. I was just like speechless. I just started to cry because, you know, without it, we would, we would have been lost. The ACT grant was a total miracle, and without that, they wouldn't be able to receive a service dog, so we're so appreciative what they've done for us as a family. 
Recently, Act Today funded a program for military children with autism in San Diego, the Inclusion Films program, which is run by Joey Travolta, and teaches uh, kids on the autism spectrum literal filmmaking skills. They learn how to make a movie. Everybody? There you go, got it. Okay. Everything that goes into the process of making a film goes into everyday life. So they're learning life skills, they're learning to collaborate. It was really nice to know how much they were enjoying this camp and they're with people who are supporting them and are making them feel great about themselves and their differences and their similarities. And I get two kids that are working together and apart and together and apart, so it's an interrelationship as well as a camp and a learning experience. It's so fulfilling when I get letters. One stands out for me, a, a boy who was 14 with Asperger's, and we gave him a grant to go to a drama camp. He wrote to us and said, Dear Act Today, thank you for letting me belong for the first time in my life. These kids are remarkable. You know, we underestimate them. They're so knowledgeable, they're so capable, and we can change the life of a family, which means changing the life of a community. We are back with Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy, and we have a special guest coming to us via Skype, uh, Stella Waterhouse. She's a British educator and author. She has a new series of books. Uh, they're called The Autism Code. And Stella, thank you for joining us from, from England. And can you tell us what this series of books is about? My pleasure. Um, I started off in the 90s writing a, a short book on or a booklet on anxiety which didn't receive much attention but everybody I'd met with autism actually seemed very anxious so I thought I'd put something together um, once I started researching it it turned into something much bigger um, I started looking at why people um, were so anxious and that led me to the sensory problems um, and neurodevelopmental delay um, and this book is really a progression from that showing my search for answers and inviting um, readers to join me in that search so it's a bit like a detective story really it really um, is Stella I have to say I'm reading uh, book one um, and I'm finding it just fascinating reading, and I, I can't put it down. It it does read like a mystery. So tell us about um, the book, starting with uh, with book one, the cracks in the code. Um, it starts off by introducing people um, to autism. There are still a lot of people out there, even people who work with people with autism, who don't really understand the basics. Um, so I'm trying to introduce it to them and also um, intro introduce some new ideas to parents. So it starts off by looking at the various problems um, that can arise. It uses, a um, uses information from the people themselves very often, like Temple Grandin, Donna Williams, um, people like that, to explain various points. But it also illustrates the points through film, like The Rain Man, which everybody knows about, and some lesser well-known films and literature as well. Um, and then it goes into the history of autism. And um, there, there are several books in this series, correct? 
Yes. So uh, give us a brief overview of what all the books in this series are, if you would. Right. The first one takes you through the background, the history, and some of the theories and ideas that have been put forward over the years, the science. Um, it then moves on to actually look at what um, differentiates autism from some of the other things like ADHD, OCD, um, which are very often found in people with autism. And that book's called um, The Ciphers, correct? Yes, that's right. Okay. And then book uh, three? Uh, book three goes on to look at the underlying problems um, and what probably or possibly causes autism um, from environmental problems to the most hotly debated topic of all, which is obviously the role vaccinations might play. And then um, book four? Book four draws it all together and actually uses the information from the first three books to assess the various treatments and therapies that are around and um, guide people towards the one which will best fit their child. Absolutely. And if people wanted to know more information about this series, Stella, where would they go to follow you and to follow this series? I do have a website which is called um, stellawaterhouse.com. I've also got ones more about the sensory problems which are found in other things like ADHD and that is sensorydifferences.com. But okay. I'm rather hoping people will join me as well on the Autism Tip Code, which is on Facebook, and actually swap ideas and useful hints yep. and things. We're going to put those up again at Absolutely. the end of the interview. Uh, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, Stella, I want to talk about your really fascinating background as an educator uh, who has devoted her life to teaching children and individuals on the autism spectrum. So we'll take a short break and we'll be right back. What do you think about ABA treatment? ABA is the one that's documented, but I think that's what I think is important with little kids, the intensity. If this kid's two, three, and four years old, he needs 20 or 30 hours a week of intensive early intervention, working one-to-one -one with an effective teacher. Mm -hmm. And an effective teacher knows kind of how just hard to push, because you've got to stretch these kids. Mm -hmm. You don't stretch them somewhere, they don't advance. Mm -hmm. You push them on them too hard, they go into sensory shutdown. The worst thing you could do with an autistic two-year-old is to do nothing with them and just let them sit there rocking. And when I was very young at two and a half, ABA-type things were used on me but it wasn't called ABA in that day. Right. You know, my teacher would hold up a cup and she'd speak slowly. You've got to speak slowly to these kids because there's auditory processing problems. You'd say cup and then I'd say cup and, and the teacher would praise me. You know, that's very similar to ABA. You know, ABA in its, um, you know, original form is a little kid's program. The whole idea is you're trying to get language jump-started. And I like the more flexible kinds of ABA. You've got different levels of kids. Mm -hmm. um, once, I mean, I had ABA type stuff when I was young, but mm -hmm. then after I pulled out of it, I didn't have to go through elaborate things of getting ready for school. I still have this habit now today. I lay my clothes out the night before that I'm going to wear, mm -hmm. so when I'm sleepy, I can just get them on. And then you have other individuals where they've got to do very structured, you know, uh, you know, breaking down the task analysis. This is where after you get out of the little kids and you get them talking, they kind of diverge into yeah. different levels of functioning. And a type of ABA program that'd be suitable for a very severe kid would not be something you'd want to do with a mild Asperger kid because you're going to bore them to death and make them hate school. Absolutely.
We're back with Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy. And Shannon and I are having a really interesting discussion with Stella Waterhouse, a British educator and author. She's de devoted her life to teaching individuals with ASD and understanding them and understanding really the whole history of autism spectrum disorders. And she's now writing a series of books. Um, and Stella, I want to hear about your background as an educator and teacher in this field. Okay. Um, I actually started off working in a Camp Hill school. I went to work with um, staff children after leaving school, but I found that the pupils intrigued me greatly, um, particularly three of them. Um, one was Kara, who was sort of um, otherworldly almost, lived in a world of her own, um, absolutely beautiful, a sort of enigmatic Mona Lisa. Mm. Um, another was Tommy, who was a real live wire and would eat anything, um, regardless of whether it was food or not. And then there was Mandy, who was beautiful but wild um, and would often run off for no reason at all. Um, and it was my experience with those children that really led me to pursue a Steiner teaching. What is Steiner? Um, can, a, you, can you explain teaching, that for teaching us? Course. Um, Rudolf Steiner yes. was um, around, worked in the early, in the 1920s, and he came up with his own methods of teaching, um, <laughs> which has now been used to develop various Steiner schools, and they work in a slightly different way. They wait for the child to be ready to learn mm. rather than... Um, pursuing a normal manner of education. Okay. But that was a long time ago. Since then, I sort of um, spent time working with children and adults with a variety of learning differences. Um, did a slight detour into working with what used to be called um, emotionally disturbed adolescent boys, and then went on to work in a community for um, adults with autism. So you're no stranger. You're no stranger uh, to living, working, teaching, um, and really getting an in-depth understanding of so many individuals that are on the autism spectrum. And I, I love, I have to say in reading the book, I love the way you look at them with such a, a curiosity and a desire to know more. Uh, you don't judge. You seem to, you seem to look at the most really positive parts of them. So I just wanted to say that you have really uh, affected me in the way I'm looking at my child. Uh, reading your book is is really made an impression on me on looking at my child differently, looking at his gifts as opposed to his deficits. Now, uh, this book one, The Cracks in the Code, it does read like a good mystery. And it begins with the history of the portrayal of individuals with ASD throughout film and literature. Uh, did you find accurate representations or a lot of misconceptions in how those with autism are represented in film and literature? Um, there are some misconceptions, obviously, um, but there is also uh, certainly some accuracy. I've seen some um, brilliant actors portraying people with autism and the stories that go surround the, that. Um, some of them are very accurate, some are sort of in between. Um, but it covers such a wide spectrum of skills. Right. Um, 
but yes, this yes, is found I, to be a variety. I was surprised to see that even Dickens and some of the characters in Dickens novels were, they really did have, have characteristics of autism. Yes, yeah. So yeah, bringing, bringing up with that, you, you also go through the history of autism and talk about some very prominent people in history, some cases where we're familiar with it and yes. others where we're not well, so we're not. familiar. I, I had never heard about the so-called lost prince, uh, Prince John Charles Francis, who had he lived would have been Queen Elizabeth's uncle. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Um, he actually s started suffering from epilepsy, uh -huh. um, which also seemed to run in the family when he was fairly young. Um, whether he had problems before that or what, he certainly seemed unusual from the onset. Um, and there were a lot of misconceptions around the reasons why he was withdrawn from public gaze. But um, it seems to be that his, as his epilepsy got worse, the family felt they needed to protect him more. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, all these, all the stories in there, I found quite fascinating. Yes, you uh, even have of... you have America's own royalty, the Kennedys, which yes. many people are aware that uh, Joseph and Rose Kennedy had a daughter named Rosemary. Not a lot of people really know much about her, but uh, really she inspired Ethel and Eunice Shriver, uh, Eunice Kennedy Shriver, to do their work. Uh, but she was also sort of closeted, it was a secret hidden away, and she had profound uh, differences and delays, correct? Yes, yeah. Although how much of that came about, uh, it's difficult to know what that, what they stemmed from exactly, because the um, throughout history, people who've been more in inverted commas, high functioning, which is a term I really dislike, um, have probably been put into the mental uh, illness category, or very often, mm -hmm. um, rather than um, disability, that sort of thing. So right. There's a, f a fine line, but of course she underwent that awful lobotomy treatment, um, which basically Shocking. destroyed the rest of her life. Absolutely. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about book two. Yeah. You talk about the code breakers. Tell us, who are the code breakers? Um, various people over the years from um, Bernard Rimland, who you, I'm sure you know of, yes. um, Dr. Delicato. Uh, I also touch upon people like Bettelheim, because even though ideas are not necessarily um, to my taste and some have been discredited, they really need looking at overall to see whether they do have any grains of truth, or at least I felt they did. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it goes into some of the more unsavory things as well as the um, more well-known and obvious things. So you're really looking at the practitioners, the doctors, the, the researchers that have, that throughout the history of autism have helped bring us either further along in our understanding or have clouded some of the issues by giving false information. Yes, very much so. Okay. Yeah. And trying to whittle out which, work out which is which, really. Right. And take, take the good ideas forward and try and um, find the pattern in them. But your overall message is one of hope, is that correct? Very much so, yes. And why do you feel hopeful? I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled that you're hopeful after looking at all of this, and, I, and I'm hopeful too, but I'd love to know why, why do you particularly have hope? 
because I think all the problems are understandable um, if only we can put the answers together. Um, and I think once you understand something, you can then work on ways of actually dealing with it and helping alleviate the problems and making people's lives that much better. And, and once the parents, sorry. Sorry, go ahead, Stella, about the parents. Once the, once the parents have the knowledge, it empowers them to look in the right places. Whereas at the moment, I think if I was starting writing now or a parent now, I would be absolutely overwhelmed with the information that's coming from all directions. Some of it's very good, some of it's decidedly dodgy, and some of it is somewhere in between. But I don't know how people actually fathom out which is which. And I think your I think your book, um, it, book one, the cracks in the code, certainly gives us some some wonderful information. I'm so excited to read the whole series. And tell us, you're looking for a publisher right now for the series and for book one, which is completed. And um, Tell us how people can connect with you, read your other books, and then stay connected with you so they can find out how to get the autism code. Could you go over ways to get in touch with you once again? Yes, certainly. Um, as I said, I've got some websites, um, the sensorydifferences.com. It actually has um, two of my shorter books I'm giving away free until mm. um February, which I think parents w might find helpful. Um, and I shall be obviously posting information about the autism code and where I'm at with it on that and oh. my own website, stellawaterhouse.com. Okay. And I'm hoping that people will join me on Facebook, as I said. Great. Yeah, you said the current two, you have two free ebooks. Why does he do that? And a survival guide. So, yes, those, right. those, I think all of us need that. <laughs> but for the Facebook page, it's Autism Tip Code, is the, is the Facebook page? The Autism Tip Code. The Autism Tip Code. Okay, yeah. so you can go to Facebook, put in the Autism Tip Code, and like that page and be able to, uh, get information on that page and to share information on that page yes. which is equally as important okay and yes. and we Stella we wish you the best of luck with this I just have to say I think you're a brilliant writer um, thank you very much indeed and I'm so enjoying this I plan to share it with Shannon um, and with any everybody I know um, and I'm certain you're going to get this published and it's going to be a great success and thank you for opening my eyes to so many things that I wasn't aware of and I think uh, we just wish you nothing but the greatest of success and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much indeed. It's much appreciated. Okay. So we will be back uh, to talk about, we had an event over the weekend, Stars and Strikes, Absolutely. and uh, with the Eddie Guardado Foundation and Major League Baseball players. So we're going to be back to talk about that fun event. Wonderful. Stick with us. Like this. Can you see me? Yeah, okay. Hi, I'm Rebecca Ishida. Say hi, Ethan. Hi. My son was diagnosed with autism in November 2004. 
with Ethan, almost immediately we noticed things that were troublesome that he just didn't sleep. He would vomit in the crib, there were a lot of sensory issues. And then he'd have like 20 of the trains lined up, and if you came in and took one train out, just yeah. meltdown completely. <laughs> Guttural instinct is to think that there's nothing wrong. Who wants to look at their child and go, there's something wrong with that child? You don't. You always want to see the best in your child. Will my kid be able to go to school? Will he interact with his peers? Will he be able to have a healthy relationship? Will he get married? I really thought that autism was like a death sentence. A lot of hope was given to me through CARD. This was my third agency and the best agency we had. And there was no way in the world, I was going to give up card because of the gains I saw Ethan was having. And I remember when Doreen saw us for the evaluation, she says, but by the time he's six, he will be recovered. And that's yep. exactly what happened. I'll fix that. Welcome back. We're back. We're back. We had a question that came in. We talked a little bit earlier about the DSM-5 criteria and a new study that came out and somebody wrote in and said, so I'm confused. Are people with Asperger's syndrome in the DSM-5? And, uh, you know, you're confused with a lot of other people. So welcome to the party. But in the DSM-5, they have done away with the diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome and they have done away with PDD-NOS. It is now autism spectrum disorder. It has a different criteria. Uh, one of the complaints before, and I think that it, it made some sense, was that you could be, um, you could fit the, uh, the, excuse me, the Asperger criteria, but you could be very profoundly affected. Mm -hmm. Maybe your, your issues uh, would be so severe that you weren't able to lead a productive life, but because you fit the Asperger definition, you, you didn't have as much access, access traditionally to services. Mm -hmm. And so with the new criteria, and likewise with PDD-NOS, right. you might not fit the autism criteria, you'd be in the PDD-NOS, which meant that you have fewer of the symptoms, but some of your symptoms might have been severe. Mm -hmm. So the new criteria says, we're, we're not going to stick to this old way of defining things. If you fit the criteria, then your autism spectrum disorder. But we, how we're going to look is there are a list of the different criteria again, and then we're going to rate them by moderate uh, uh, and severe so that you get a rating for how severe are you. Uh, there are people who don't fit that criteria anymore and the, the, the criteria that they may fit, as the study said, is this social communication disorder. Mm -hmm. So there is no more Asperger. What the recent study has shown that most of the people who had Asperger's before will fit the ASD diagnosis, but we can expect that some of them won't and mm -hmm. they will go in that social communication disorder diagnosis and we want to fight to make sure that those people still have access to services right that's what the question is about right hopefully that clarified it for you and didn't make it just more confusing no, I think it's pretty clear there okay. what you said okay the, the, the big question is what services will those with SCD be able to access Absolutely. Right. All right. Uh, so we yeah, want to we, talk a little bit about this wonderful event that right, you yes. were a part of on Sunday. Yes. Um, 
Act Today works with the Eddie Guardado Foundation. Uh, Eddie Guardado is a former Major League Baseball player, three-time All-Star winner. Named they called him Everyday Eddie when he was um, playing, and really beloved by all the professional athletes out there currently playing, retired players. And he and his wife Lisa have uh, three beautiful children, I believe. And uh, Ava, their little girl, is on the autism spectrum nonverbal and they put together the Eddie Guardado Foundation to do fundraisers raise money for autism uh, Lisa joined um, forces with, with us Lisa and Eddie several years ago they were on our board and Lisa loves to throw parties she loves to do events so she throws the events and the proceeds go to act today so uh, Eddie Guardado Foundation and the Michael Young Foundation which is Michael is another MLB player uh, he and his wife have a foundation and they put together an event which the proceeds, uh, the majority of the proceeds are going to act today for grants. And uh, we have a few pictures. Emily, you want to pick up, put up the picture of the, all the players? Okay, these That's some a pretty heavy, group of men. These are some heavy hitters. These are the bowlers. We've got Garrett Anderson, uh, Adrian Beltre, who is, you know, big, big, well-known player. Michael Young, Eddie Guardado, Jake Ellenberger, and Chuck Finley. Uh, these are all MLB guys that uh, either currently playing or retired players that came out to support children with autism. And you know, you hear a lot there. There's all the celebrities lined up, uh, getting ready to bowl. Um, and uh, here we have, I don't know who these guys are. How um, wonderful it is it? But these that are a lot of pro players. These are busy guys. Busy. Oh, this is Nick Punto, Mark Ellis, Los Angeles Dollar Dodger Chaplain, Brandon Cash, and Skip Schumacher. Um, so, and there, there's Eddie and Lisa next to him. And there is um, Christina Barbosa and Michael Young. Uh, there at the event and there is Michael Young signing autographs for all the kiddos that were there lots of kids there on the spectrum and this guy was really interesting apparently he's quite the player and let's see his name was he looked more like a rock star to me but this is Michael Young and Brian Wilson um, I don't know who he plays with I'm not a big baseball I don't know all the teams but uh, he bowled. There's Eddie and Lisa and little Ava. Oh, what a beautiful, beautiful family. So this was just so such a great experience. And I, from what I hear, uh, about 150,000 was raised. Wow. Phenomenal, which will be split between uh, EGF and Act Today and the Michael Young Foundation. So that will go directly to grants and hopefully we'll be giving those grants out through Act Today. Uh, in February. So if you haven't applied uh, for this first quarter, uh, please go to act-today.org, um, get your grant application in, and uh, is it open be, right now? Yes, it is open. Okay, so, um, but, but only until February first. So it's just. Uh, to the end I of believe this week? February first we're closing. I'm not exactly sure, okay. but we are. It is a deadline coming up. You can go to the website and find out. Sometimes okay. I don't stay on top of all that. Well, and you know what? That that I would like to stay on top of that, and so we can let our viewers know when the grant phases are open because it's four times a year that you open up the grant phase yes. and people can put their application in. Now people can be getting their application together before the grant phase because you know how things happen. Right. It's best to just do the work on it and if you don't 
get accepted. You can uh, we keep you in the system, but then you can reapply after a certain amount of time. And and we should say that the 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 process, the the grant application form, is not it's not a one sentence thing. No, it, it's a little bit lengthy, and there's yeah. a good reason for that because yeah. you guys are very conscientious about making sure that you give money where it can go and be very useful. Yeah, we pay the provider of services as opposed to the families directly. We do have to have proof of diagnosis. We do have to have um, we have to have tax returns. You know, because we have to validate the the reasons right. behind the grant. Um, and it isn't tied to you know there isn't a thing where you say if you make over a certain amount you're not allowed to apply. No, uh, which I really love and appreciate. Right. But you do ask to see tax returns because you want to make sure that you have to have a way of prioritizing. And when you see a family that clearly does not have the income to be able to provide something like a fence or something like right. that, it takes on a different priority. Yeah. I, I know there are people who are watching who probably, you know, feel like, oh, what does it take to get a grant? It takes real need and, and a willingness to fill out that application and, and a lot of times to reapply because I wish more than anything else in the world that you had millions and gazillions of dollars to I give away because <laughs> you're so conscientious about how you do it. Yeah. But there are limitations. Yes. But I do want to say in terms of like how it's rated and need and all of that, mm -hmm. uh, financial need is not the only criteria. Absolutely. We have a we have a computer system that before the grant committee looks at every grant um, they're ranked and they're ranked they're, there's four criteria and one of course is financial great financial need you yes. know having no funds of course ranks up there as a great as a great need uh, we do have other circumstances in the family yeah if, if you know Multiple single parents well parent. that's a second criteria okay. the 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 uh, family situation if there are other illnesses if yeah. there's a parent battling uh, you know a, a fatal illness if there's a single parent, if there are uh, other children in the family with uh, disabilities and delays. So that's considered what. Then we have other children on the spectrum in the family. If you have more than one child in the family on the spectrum, that's taken into account okay. as well. So those things are all rated before we even rate them then we read the individual stories and yeah. then the grant committee goes ahead and, and ranks after that so it's a pretty scientific it's not just us sitting in a room go wow this this these people sound really great give them a grant yeah that's not the way it works no so it's very scientific and um, you know we, we analyze the data going in and then we read every grant that qualifies some will automatically you know if somebody if a family's if someone's bringing in two hundred thousand a year and they've gotten a grant before and they've only got one child in the family, chances are they won't get a grant over the single mom battling cancer with two kids on the spectrum right. that's living on welfare. So that's just, you know. Right, it's because there has to be a way to prioritize. But I will yeah. say this, if there were more funds, there would be more grants. If there were more funds, there would be more grants. So it's kind of interesting hearing our president, hearing President Obama last night speak about the military family and all we're doing to employ veterans. Well, uh, one of our... Uh, biggest programs uh, at Act Today is Act Today for Military Families. And let me tell you what you can do for a military family if you want to help. You can help 
provide for their children with autism. They they don't, that's what they care about. If a military family, uh, number one, they care about their children in general, helping their yeah. children. And they care about helping their children that happen to have disabilities, delays, or, or issues, health issues. That's the number one thing they care about. Keep their children safe, give to their children. And a good way to do that is to go to our website and go to our Act Today for Military Families, make a donation, and or sign up for our run, which is happening in San Diego, or support a team, or become a sponsor. Um, help a military family by helping their children. And I, and I want to also make sure, because one of the things that got said to me early on was, it isn't just about necessarily you making a donation. If you have the ability to do that, that's great. Mm -hmm. and that's a very easy thing to do. You can click a button and, right. and do that process. But if you don't have the funds to do that, you have other things at your disposal. Because our whole thing this week is about taking action. Mm -hmm. And that sometimes, you know, it looks like, oh, there's nothing I can do. And that's almost never the case. Never the case. Uh, one of the things that you, you guys have a list of things that you can do, like have a lemonade stand. Right. And you might think, well, you know, what's that going to do? Is that really going to put a dent? Well, they've got another place on their website where they'll say what $50 will do. Yes. And it's not small. And when you put $50 together from one family with $50 from another family, now you got $100. Right. And then the other thing is you never know what's going to come out of that little lemonade stand. Yeah. Um, Laura Marquin, who worked with us and still does volunteer work with us um, her children did a lemonade stand and uh, through that lemonade stand they met a neighbor who ran a charity that then gave tens of thousand dollars to Act Today for Military Families. And he found out about it through that lemonade stand. It's pay it forward. Yeah. It's one good deed. Yep. You just never know. It's that whole thing about... You got to show up and let things unfold. You got to right? let things unfold. And it's a ripple effect. It that sure one is. drop ripples and ripples and ripples and yep. builds. And I see this every day in the work we do at ACT Today, how the, the good deed of one family or one child, you know, spreading the word, spreading the word on your social media. I was just going to say, too, we all, Facebook, uh, you know, I will say that a lot of autism parents, like myself, don't really get the Twitter thing. Yeah, I don't uh, tweet. But, I have it, but I don't do right. Twitter. Right. But uh, a lot of us are on Facebook, and yeah. you know you have, you know, whether it's 200 or 8,000 parents that you're friends with on, on Facebook, some of them who have kids on the spectrum, some who don't, and being able to share and say, hey, this is an opportunity. If you want to say thanks for the good things that you have in your life, uh, support a team who's running in this uh, ATMF run yeah, on April in order 19th. to help right military families yes. make sure that they take care of their children. Yeah. You can do that long distance, and that takes a second. A think second. Of, think, I, I love cat videos. I love crazy cat videos, <laughs> and I love it when friends share the crazy cat videos because my child enjoys them. It, it takes a second to do that. It takes the same second to share this cause with your warm network. Yeah, thank you for that plug. Well, uh, hey, I, I, I'm about taking action this week. And, and I, I like really that. wish there were a lot more funds for you to give more grants. Yes, uh, I That's do as high well. on my list of things. Yeah, I just I noticed how, you know, it seemed like the highlight last night of the State of the Union, and so much of the focus was on the military family. And then, of course, we there was the Brave Army Ranger. Oh, my goodness. And everybody responded to that. And I think that's something, I think it's something that every American agrees upon. We yep. need to support our military. We need to support 
support those families. We need to show our love and appreciation. What greater way than supporting military families that have children with autism? And Absolutely. it's a great number, higher than the general population. We don't know why. And um, they need your help. They're they not do. getting enough help. They do. And I yeah. love what you're doing. But it's not the only project you have. We should no, say that many, you have many, Act Espanol. Yeah. Uh, you have a whole safety. We're running out of yeah, time. But check it programs. out. Go to act-today.org and check out what they've check got there. Check out what we're doing if you want to help, if you need help. Yeah. Nancy runs a tight ship over there. And we appreciate you, the work that you do. We are out of time. And I want to thank you. We want to thank Stella Waterhouse. I want to remind you that tomorrow we're back for a show. Dr. Jonathan Tarbox will be here. He's going to be listening. talking about reducing those self-stimulatory behaviors. We've got Dr. Del Nadowski here. And don't forget, coming up in February, we're featuring inspirational stories. You're not going to want to miss that. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Uh, and as I said, we'll be back tomorrow. Until then, please give your kiddos a hug from me. And give yourselves a hug from me. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye.